0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: We all leave traces when we move. You know, no crime is ever committed in a random location.
0: For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following interview with Dr. Sam Lundrigan was recorded in August 2019 for Crime and Investigations TV series Making a Monster. Dr. Lundrigan is an investigative psychologist and geographic profiler whose expertise lie in geographic profiling systems and the spatial behaviour of criminals. Working closely with the police to provide geographic profiles on a series of serious crime investigations, Dr. Lundrigan brings her knowledge to help us understand how a serial killer's geography may influence their crimes. Here, Dr. Lundrigan discusses Scottish serial killer and paedophile Robert Black. Caution, the subject matter of this interview contains graphic descriptions and is
2: often very disturbing. Geographic profiling is a technique um, that is used to help predict where an offender might have his or her base from an analysis of the distribution of the crimes. So what the technique does is help prioritise a search area Based on an analysis of the distribution and the relationship of the crimes to each other, and it will prioritise the most likely area of residence or base, so the centre of gravity, if you like, where the, the sort of centre of the pattern is. Um, and then what the police can use that for is to help prioritise door to door inquiries, for example, or searching um, databases for known offenders who might live within that particular area and so it will never be used to exclude suspects but it can help to narrow down the search for suspects Robert Black is highly unusual in the way he utilised the whole of the United Kingdom to commit his offences I've never seen a case since then uh, and certainly at the time when the geography was looked at, uh, compared to previous child killers, um, he was by far and away the the most mobile, which immediately says something to me um, in terms of the geography, because what we have to remember is this isn't an offender who's just randomly combing the United Kingdom looking for victims. There has to be an underlying reason for why he committed the crimes in those locations. And this is where it gets interesting because, of course, we now know that his occupation gave him an entirely legitimate reason for travelling the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. It facilitated his offending. Um, And so once you understand his non-offending behaviour, you can immediately start to make sense of why or how he used that to commit these crimes in seemingly scattered all over the country this was one of the the biggest manhunts i think since the yorkshire ripper this case uh, the first thing is is linking the crimes together so individually they would have presented challenges because uh, the victims were abducted um, in one location, and then, in many respects, found hundreds of miles away. Their bodies were found hundreds of miles away. So that's that is a, is so atypical that investigators, where do, where do you start? Because usually, when a murder s- happens, the search is local, which they the search would have been in all of these um, all of these cases. But once the bodies are found, 250, 300 miles away, then which which of these locations is the most significant? How do you start to unpack? How do you start to understand the relationship between the two and work backwards to try and understand what's going on? I do think early on it came up that they they thought he maybe have some sort of job as a delivery driver. That does seem like the obvious, um, uh, the obvious uh, conclusion to come to. Yet, at the same time, how then do you, if, they, if there's no real connection with a the place, then how do you start to um, identify a suspect pool, if you if you like? But of course, the the, the important thing is is that uh, you know no crime is ever committed in a random location because an offender has to has to place himself there. So there is always a way of linking an offender to his environment. And if we now, in hindsight, look back at Robert Black's movement, we know he did those runs from London to Scotland regularly. We know that he deliberately used to say to his um, work colleagues that he would find, um, you know, back routes uh, off those locations um, or back routes through to to the locations to to deliver his goods. We know that he had a base in the Midlands uh, within a 26-mile radius of where he disposed of three of the bodies of his victims. And that that was a base, that wasn't a random choice. He was staying there on his routes from London to to Scotland. So all of these decisions we can map back and, and understand the rationality underlying them. I think those early crimes were really pivotal for, for him in that he he realised very early on that yes if he if if, if he offended too close to home and uh, then the chances of apprehension would 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 increase significantly and he also realised when that happened that actually uh, that would blow any cover he had out of the water so once he moved to London away from his um, home base in original home base in Scotland I think he made a a conscious decision to keep London and that area around his his home as as his his sort of buffer zone, if you like, where he didn't offend, so he could maintain that rather thinly thin, thinly veiled um, um, air of respectability um, and keep his offending behaviour, his murders and and, and his uh, abductions, a, a, a safe distance from where he where he offended, and of course for him. Because his job was taking him, from, you know, from London to Scotland, he had the whole country to choose from. There's a huge risk to, to travel any distance um, with uh, a victim inside a, inside an offender's vehicle. But the flip side of that is that with it, it sort of prolongs or elongates the, the pleasure, if you like. It's It's got that ultimate control for... Uh, the altar you know, for as long as possible, and also some satisfaction in evading capture. You know, getting driving all that distance, knowing full well what is in the back of his van. And Robert Black um, really enjoyed, I think, those sorts of challenges, and, and 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 getting away with it. He would seek out those very environments where he would he would be guaranteed to find young children uh, playing uh, and he would use those environments to observe, to stalk and ultimately, when the opportunity presented itself, i.e. there was one child left in the playground, no adults nearby to, um, or at the side of the road to um, abduct them. He chose, he selected deposition sites that were in lay so he didn't have to drive too far off the main highway where lots of lorries and vans stopped so he would not have attracted any attention and then he was very adept at taking his moment um, to move the bodies of his victims and well discard of them really there was no attempt even really to, to hide, hide them uh, so he chose the, the closest locations he could uh, to his legitimate activities to, to to utilise for his illeg- illegitimate activities. He really uh, had two bases. He had his his London base, where behind his his closed doors, and you know he he uh, he was a tenant in uh, with a, f- a family. He had his secret world of his fantasy-fuelled pornography and, and so on and and child abuse imagery, um, which was readily available to him in, in London. Um, but he didn't offend there. He kept that just as his his, his sort of private fantasy-driven world. But once he got in his van, which was his second base, and his van really was like a mobile home base, and he could take that... Once he was in his van and travelling wherever he travelled, he he had a base with which he could actually enact out those fantasies, Um, and that's what he did time and time again.
0: Convicted of the kidnap, rape, sexual assault and murder of four young girls between 1981 and 1986, Black died in prison in 2016. He is suspected of having committed many more crimes. His last attack, the kidnapping and sexual assault of a fifth girl in Stowe in the Scottish borders, was prevented when a neighbour saw Black bundle a girl into his van. With the neighbor having noted the registration and called the police, Black drove back through the town and was arrested, with the kidnapped girl's father being one of the arresting police officers.
2: He made some fundamentally bad decisions that day when he, um, he got caught. And it was interesting because they, they were all rational. If you actually unpack them, the decision-making, first of all, he abducted the young, um, the young girl in Stowe um, and he, th- he thought there'd been no witnesses. He'd made that assumption um, and, he, and he based his f- further decision-making on the assumption that he hadn't been seen. And he then made a really interesting decision that he couldn't carry on to his next delivery um, with the girl in the back immediately. So he dis- made the decision to go uh, in the opposite direction, which meant that when he turned around, he had to come back through the very village that she- he'd abducted her from. And of course, in the meantime, it had been reported there were police everywhere. And that was, uh, that was his downfall because he drove right back into the heart, right back into the heart of the, the, um, the, the trap really of, of, of how he was caught. I think the the most significant reason for why he was so difficult to catch for so long was because of the way he used his environment, it was his geography. It was the fact that he covered so many hundreds of miles across a country um, with many, many different police forces, um, that his crimes weren't linked for a long time. Uh, and he, he, with distance, came the safety for him. Ultimately, it also meant that when it finally did go to court, it was also the reason why it was easy to put him in those places at all those particular times and places because of the records that were kept. But until that point, that distance afforded him the freedom to carry on offending for as long as he did. We all leave traces when we move, because we, uh, if we're using a vehicle, we have to refuel. Uh, we will pass through um, police camera zones uh, where number plate, uh, plates are recognised. Um, so it's very, very difficult to travel undetected. Uh, so going back, you can, using all these different mechanisms these days, uh, with technology, you can uh, trace people's movements really quite accurately. And even back then in the time when Robert Black was offending, because he was using his legitimate career to carry out his crimes, he was having to fulfill certain processes as he went about his, his business, i.e. keeping record of, of um, uh, you know his fuel receipts, using payment cards that were attached to his company. So actually, in many respects, he was leaving a calling card across the country as he drove around, which uh, meant uh, the case against him was uh, reasonably easy to piece together. So over the years, um, I've worked uh, predominantly within a university environment as an academic researcher, building the evidence base, understanding, trying to understand more and more about the decision making of offenders in, a, in terms of the, their geography and, and where they commit crimes always with the idea that that can be applied back into the real world in terms of investigative techniques. So I've worked very closely with police forces um, in the States and Canada and New Zealand, as well as in the United Kingdom, uh, assisting usually with uh, stranger rape or stranger murder inquiries, where there's an unknown offender, a series um, of, of, of crimes, helping them to understand what that pattern of offending might mean from a spatial perspective, a geographical perspective, and how the environment, um, how an offender might be using his environment to, um, uh, to offend, and what that might tell us, working backwards, about where he might live and the world he's operating in.
0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: I've interviewed many offenders over, over, over many years, and one thing I've found time and time again, they often find it really hard to articulate why they've done something. What they have never failed to, to do is to tell me that, where they did it. They understand the, the underlying rationality of the where an offence takes place and so it shows how how um, revealing that can be. The location is the location, there's no ambiguity and so if if, if a series has been reliably linked together then, then and I'm satisfied that we are dealing with one series of offences linked to one offender then there is no erroneous information those locations become part of the analysis it gets more challenging when you're looking at the behavior within a crime, within the individual crime so within any murder there are x number of behaviors and deciding which of those behaviors are the ones that are most useful in helping us pull together a picture of the offender is much more challenging, and there's all sorts of, and that's why we do so much research on solved cases because what we're trying to understand is which actions or behaviours at a crime scene r- link reliably with characteristics of the offender. Himself, Because there's lots of behaviours at a crime scene that, frankly, are, are of no, in, no interest in that they're not going to tell us anything about the offender, either because they're too common or, indeed, um, that they're driven by something other than the offender himself, so they might be driven by the victim's behaviour. So we're looking for those behaviours that are coming from the offender himself and, therefore, will tell us more about the, the way he operates uh, and whether he's committed crimes similar in the past or where he might be in his offending career, how old he might be, and so on. That's the final
0: episode of Making a Monster, The Tapes. For a deeper understanding of how the serial killers featured in this series came to be, make sure you've watched Making a Monster, the TV show, which is available on demand. For your next true crime podcast fix, Try Crime and Investigation's Murder Town. Or we have some great interviews with some of the people that make our shows on Inside Crime and Investigation. And if you'd like to try something different, search for History Podcasts, Not What You Thought You Knew, with Dr. Fern Riddell, or Letters of Love in World War II, both from TV channel History. Rate and review on your podcast app if you enjoyed listening or share the series using hashtag makingamonster. And finally, follow Crime and Investigation on social media and visit crimeandinvestigation.co.uk to stay up to date with all the latest news. Making a Monster, the tapes, features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, Produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter.
3: History's Letters of Love in World War II reveals a remarkable account of the Second World War through a series of real-life love letters.
4: Featuring interviews with their family and starring me, Johnny Pitts.
3: And me, Amy Nuttall. This eight-part podcast series tells the brave, tenacious and touching story of Cyril and Olga's war.
4: We found a place to park our tanks, climbed out, just going to start a fire to make a meal when, phew, bang, phew, bang, one shell dropped about 20 yards one side of the tank, another about the same the other side.
3: I'm dreaming of those three happy months we spent together at home. How quickly they flew. It'll be like a second honeymoon when we start that life again.
4: The locals came out in canoes to try and sell fruit, baskets, sandals, etc., How my mouth watered when I saw the piles of bananas, mangoes, oranges, pineapples. I haven't had any fresh fruit since I left home.
3: A sad note crept into your letter from Port of Call when you described the rough sea. And you said for a moment you thought you saw a glimpse of the Peatland Hills with limestone walls. You were gliding down towards Taddington on a misty April morning. Then suddenly it was the green sea with its white veins and the village was lost in the trough of a wave. It must have been a lovely little dream and you described it so beautifully
4: Download Letters of Love in World War II on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast
0: The mind of a criminal can be a very dark place. But you're not
4: scared of the dark. Are you? Are you? CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London. 25th and 26th of September, 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. Tickets are on sale now. Visit crimecon.co.uk. Crimecon UK. The ultimate true crime weekend. Partnered by Crime and Investigation.
1: Hi, I'm
0: Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.